Got Audrey Anderson from Anderson Attorneys and Advisors with us. And uh, we got the whole rest of the show. Audrey, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing wonderful. It's been a little bit since we chatted, but you know, you're know you our expert on so many different things. For people that may have never heard you on this program before, before you used to work in the state's attorney's office, and now you switched over to the defense side of things, right? Very true, yeah. So I've been doing this for a very long time. Oh, come on. Not very long. <laughs> you wouldn't look at... Um, uh, so we wanted to talk a little today. We did this a little bit for the governor's race, which I thought was a really interesting conversation. The idea of here in Chicago, obviously we have the mayoral election on the 28th, and everyone top of mind, top issue that people say is the most important to them, and certainly the candidates are reflecting that and what they're talking about is crime. And obviously the eight other folks that are running against Mayor Lightfoot pointing to high crime statistics and pinning that on her, which begs the question, how much does a mayor really have control over crime? It's an interesting question and one that deserves to be dug into for sure. It is absolutely a very interesting question. I mean, any person in the mayor's position, what a lot of pressure yes. for for acts of complete strangers that go out and commit crime. But you're right. I guess she or any mayor in her situation could technically be held responsible because she has the authority to appoint the superintendent, the head of the Chicago Police Department, and they're one of the two major police departments that control and look out for crime in the city. While researching for this topic or while looking into or analyzing these sorts of things, what sorts of factors did you consider about this? Because other people could say, yes, of course, you can point the superintendent of police, but crime's been up in American cities all over every all over the entire country. Uh, crime is up in international cities as well, across the world. Uh is it just a trend that is affecting everybody right now out of this post-COVID time? I think it is a trend. And then people could also think maybe it's because of certain ordinances or laws that are being passed within Chicago area, the enforcement or removal of whether or not a certain law will be enforced or withdrawn. So that can affect it too. But you're right. Nationwide, it's increasing, it seems. So what do you think? How much can we put on the mayor's desk for crime? Or at least you don't have to offer your set, uh, solid opinion on it, but give us both sides of the argument here. Right. It definitely is because she's the one that pushes, or the mayor, I don't the mayor is obviously female, but anyone in the mayor's situation, she's the one that pushes the citywide legislation. Pretty much the aldermen on the city council are mostly pushing agenda for their own wards or neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So true, it's up to her. She has a lot of power and control over who she appoints, a superintendent or the committees within the council who gets placed in the hundreds of positions around the city that deals with law enforcement and legislation. So it is a significant part, but She's also somewhat in charge of the budget, of how much gets pushed. or, But then again, who's paying the budget? So she can put up the numbers and ask for as much or as little as she wants. But if she's asking for increase, it's the city, the taxpayers who have to come up with the funds. Are there other positions you think in the city that are maybe more responsible or some could argue have a much stronger role in what happens on a criminal side in the city? Oh, absolutely. I think some people could think that it... Uh, significant person that can be held accountable it's obviously the state's attorney for cook county whether or not they enforce certain laws or not the punishments that they're seeking cases that they're dismissing the sentences or offers that they're making to defendants and their defense attorneys that's a huge portion of this 
discussion as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that for most people, it comes down to there's been a lot of people that have blamed Kim Fox for the certain rules and regulations or, or who she holds, I guess you could say, or who she charges or who she doesn't. Uh, and a lot of people blaming the mayor as well. I think some of it is symptomatic that when things aren't going right, it's just natural to blame the incumbent, right? I think that they're in charge when it happens. The buck stops there. And Sometimes that isn't fair, but it is the reality of the situation, or at least that's how people perceive it. Right. Absolutely. That's, of course, what people challenging the incumbents for any position citywide, nationwide are going to say. And then once if she does not win reelection, I suppose, then the new mayor, everyone's going to put expectations on the new mayor, which, of course, they'll then say it takes a while to undo what was done in the term before them. I want to dig into the state's attorney role again. And you were you worked in the state's attorney's office, not in Cook County. But out in DuPage County, right? Right, DuPage, correct. So for those that don't quite understand or or dive into it in depthly, what does a state's attorney do? What is their role in a county? So they're a huge role. So police officers obviously can arrest anyone that they want and charge with a crime is what people think. But police officers, yes, they can charge people with misdemeanors. But for felonies in DuPage and most of the counties, Cook as well, they have to screen the case or approve charges from a prosecutor. So there's always a prosecutor, multiple prosecutors on duty 24-7, 365. So it's really the state's attorney prosecutor's office that decides who gets charged and with what um, felony crimes. So the most serious. So yes, officers can arrest someone, but if the prosecutors refuse to charge or um, reduce charges once a person is charged, it's all on the prosecutor. And how do we choose our state's attorneys? Right. So those are actually elected. So those are just, uh, they run for re-election or you can challenge your incumbent. And it's usually pretty difficult to get an incumbent overthrown. It's occasionally, but typically they have good track records, some belief, and so it's hard to overthrow that. So it's a very unique position as state's attorney because it is uh, obviously judicial in nature, and you're trying to be, you know, fair and balanced, and uh, not wield your prosecutor, uh, you know, sword too mightily. Um, but it's also a political position in that you have to run and you're accountable to voters. Is that an interesting juxtaposition for the job? It very much is. And then state attorneys also, they handle, especially in larger counties like Cook or DuPage, you have a civil division as well as a criminal division. You're also involved in nation or statewide legislation and getting bills passed or not. So you have a lot of hats. And so the state's attorney really does get involved in so many things, especially the more significant cases that are charged by the office. All the state's attorneys are usually kept up to date, up to the minute as to what's going on in their offices and what crimes are out there being committed and charged. So on a zoom out lens, if I were to ask which position is more responsible for a rise in crime. Is it possible to even answer that? Or are they just such different jobs, the mayor and the state's attorney, that they both contribute in their own different ways? I think they both contribute, but I I believe perhaps on more of a day-to-day basis, impacting the greatest number, I think one could possibly argue that it is the state's attorney as opposed to the mayor. Because the mayor is generally, but not as hands-on as the state's attorney would be. Okay, on the actual litigation, the prosecuting, that sort of thing. Correct. Okay, that's just the first broad strokes. We're going to dive into it deeper. If you have any questions, 312-981-7200 or comments, feel free to get them in. I don't know who you place the blame on, and maybe Audrey has can uh, can refine your thoughts or offer some perspective on that angle. We'll get to all that after the news on WGN. 720 WGN. It's uh, John Hansen here. Let's get legal. Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. And we got Audrey Anderson from Anderson Attorneys and Advisors. By the way, Audrey, uh, what number should people reach you at if they want any of your services? Sure. A good number is 630-877-5800. And um, 
what sorts of areas do you cover? So we do criminal defense for juvenile and adults, as well as DCFS child abuse cases, investigations, when a child has been removed from a parent or guardian as well. Chicago and suburbs mainly? Correct. Okay. Um, all right. So we were talking earlier about who's more to blame for rising crime. Is it a mayor's office? Is it a state's attorney's office? Is it just general circumstances that are nationwide and are uncontrollable? And I don't think we'll ever come to a definitive answer, although everyone has a definitive opinion on it. We got it into the state's attorney thing about the discretion state's attorneys have and the role that they play in the everyday running of the justice system in a county. And we were talking during the break about a very important point to make. People do not, victims do not press charges. They don't say, I want charges against this person, and boom, bam, charges happen. It is a decision made by the attorney's office, right? The state's attorney's office. Right. So the prosecutors are actually the one to decide, especially with the felonies, as to whether or not charges will be brought. So correct, a victim really cannot say, I changed my mind, let's just dump it. The prosecutors are the ones that make that decision. We see it on TV a lot, situations maybe after an accident, like, oh, do you, you want me to write this guy a ticket from a police officer or at a bar fight? Should I charge this person with a crime? I mean, that stuff may happen, but it is ultimately not how the legal system typically plays out, right? Right. And obviously, police officers have discretion, and they right. can use common sense as to whether or not a person should be charged if it's an accidental bumping or touch or a mutual brawl. I mean, do they really want to arrest both people? Then they would be cross-complainants and the cases get dismissed. So they can just try to diffuse the situation and ask if they really do want charges. Right. Correct. And they can use that in their discretion, right? And if, if a victim says, no, I don't want to press charges, why go through with the whole process, right? Because a state's attorney, or they can even show up for court like as a witness, right? I mean, that 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 is a log jam in the system, right? Absolutely, because then the numbers would be overwhelming. The system is already so crowded and lengthy that just to add so many more cases would be really counterproductive. Right. And we've talked a lot about on the show that, about the role that you do and the things that you do as a defense attorney. But what I found interesting as we were chatting is this world of victims who maybe don't have an advocate, someone in their corner, and that charges don't even come for a crime that they were a victim of. That happens a lot, I imagine, right? Right. Sometimes it does happen. So, yes, sometimes we'll actually have victims who call us to say that they were victimized from a crime. Uh, And what do they do? Like, what's the process? And they really want charges to be pressed. And so how do they go about it? Like, they reported the crime to police, but the police say, oh, the prosecutor said no. What can you do to help me? Or if a crime has been charged... Victims call to say and request me to walk them through the system, how it works. Some bigger counties like Cook, DuPage, others, they have their own victims advocacy group or unit within the state's attorney's office that handles and helps and reaches out to victims. But sometimes in smaller counties, it's difficult for a prosecutor to keep up with their huge caseloads, even in bigger counties, their huge caseloads, as well as then talking with all the victims and explaining all the steps, which they do. But still, it's nice because victims reach out to us because victims have their own bill of rights. They're Mm -hmm. required to be heard and someone advocate on behalf of them. So victims also will call to see if I can help them. And you can. That's one of your services you offer is an ability to work the system makes it sound wrong. Game the system. You know the system. Right. To help guide them through. To guide them through it. Right. So it's just interesting. Do a lot of defense lawyers do this for victims? I don't know. I don't think necessarily that they do. It's somewhat unique. So sometimes I've had clients or victims call, they become clients, and then I start with the police department. And sometimes they're like, oh, you know what? It just fell to the bottom of the pile or trying to follow up with them about identifying a victim or a defendant, excuse me, with evidence if they've followed through with it. That's what I do as well. 
Other times, the police officers agree, like they really do want charges, but prosecutors say no. So I have the officers on my side, our client victim side, and then go to the prosecutors to say, what, if anything, can you guys do? Where are we? What more evidence do you need? And I'm somewhat the conduit sometimes. So you're kind of just bugging them a bunch. I am, but in a nice way. <laughs> in a nice way. No, I meant this is right. like, as, as you sometimes have to be that bug in people's ears to get them to do it. Also, I imagine, um, is if you're going to a state's attorney and you have a victim that's come to you, that state's attorney then knows that it's often kind of being served up for them. They have a victim that is cooperating. They have a victim that will show up. They have a victim that wants to testify. That kind of can give a state's attorney a little bit, make them stand up a little straighter, knowing that they may have a stronger case and a reason to go after it. Absolutely. If they know that they don't have to worry about tracking on that victim that may be hard to find or that moves or has a relationship with someone, it is very helpful because then they can just rely on me to assist in that as well. Well, what I find it fascinating, and before you get a bunch of calls about civil matters, this is not you asking for if someone had a beef with their neighbor and you're trying to get the state's attorney to charge the neighbor with a crime, right? That would be not what right. you're yeah, doing. Right, yeah, no, I don't do any of that. Okay. So, right, if you have an issue with your neighbor's tree branch over the fence line right. or throwing trash over or not collecting trash that they throw and, like, hide behind their shed in the corner, we don't do that. It's not civil cases. It's not civil, yeah, right. That's a civil matter where you can go to court and sue your neighbor to force them to do something. Right. You don't handle that at all. Correct? A lot of people do that already. Yes, Some of do. them come on the show and they're great. Yes. What you are advocating for is victims of criminal cases. So this victim isn't getting money at the end of this. This is a victim looking for justice. Correct. Justice and punishment and making sure that that person is held accountable for whatever the crime was. Breaking to their home, um, stealing the car, hitting them, things like that. I just find it interesting. And maybe it's not a big part of what you do. It's a couple cases a year, right? Or is it right? Okay. But it is a part of what you do. It is. That you find victims that are that passionate about what happened to them, that they are willing to hire you to help advocate for them, even though it's not going to necessarily lead to a pot of gold. This isn't like a lawsuit that's coming and they're going to get a huge windfall, right? Right, right. So a lot of times people will come to us because they are the victim of a crime and they've reported to police, but they don't know that they can follow up. They can go to the sergeant. They can go to the lieutenant, the detectives. They don't know that. So I will go with them just because some people have trust issues or they've had negative encounters with law enforcement. So they think that's how it is for everyone. So I tell them that's not how it is generally. So I can walk you through the process. I can go with you to the police department to meet with the officer to show what evidence the officers are going to need to investigate it. So you aren't working through some uh, legal court of law system. This is you and your connections and what you know about the law as an advocate, knowing whose door to knock on to say, hey, pay attention to this. Right. That's so cool. I've never really heard of that. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, there's just isn't evidence. And so you can't do anything for your client. But other times you do get justice. So it, it helps. I'm blown away by this. AndersonAA.com is the website. And uh, people can give you guys a call at uh, 630-877-5800 for that or all the other things you do, which we'll get into more in a little bit. I want to chat after the break about this new law about people being able to change their names legally that are felons. You want to do that? Definitely. That sounds very interesting. It is. We'll do it after this on WGN. Audrey Anderson from Anderson Attorneys and Advisors. Saw this one cross on the Chicago Tribune today, or yesterday, last night. 
Governor Pritzker okaying measures relaxing restrictions on felons changing their name. He signed a law yesterday that loosens those restrictions for people with past felony convictions who want to legally change their names. I know a lot of people's hairs immediately stand up and go, why would you ever be okay with felons changing their name? It's like, what is this, like, catch me if you can? Like, you worry that they're going to escape the system. When you go through why they say that it's a, a good idea, um, it's, it used to be a lifetime ban on felons doing it. This doesn't allow willy-nilly for people just to do it. It still has to go before a judge to make that decision. But it allows people, and they're, they're advocating for transgender folks who maybe have a felony record who want to legal change their name. Or what I found interesting, victims of sex trafficking who may have, or of, of abuse from a domestic abuse who want to safety and they want to change their names, but they have a felony conviction as well, and they weren't able to do so. What's your take on the initial uh, reading through this story? Right. It's definitely interesting because once you hear it, at first, one side is, oh, my gosh, felons shouldn't be permitted to change their name. But then you think on the other side, well, yeah, some person, if they were 19 and made a mistake and they've led this law-abiding life, why should they be saddled with this? And why shouldn't they be permitted to change their name? But yes, in reading the article and researching a little bit further, it is definitely interesting because they're talking about individuals that are transgender. So they they have on their license or whatever a certain name, and that's not who they identify as. Mm-hmm. So that's confusion and disturbing for them, even though the Secretary of State allows you to put your the gender that you identify with on your IDs now. But still, it doesn't change your name. So... I understand why that could be significant. But, of course, on the flip side, this permits sex offenders to change their names. Which so raises a lot of questions, oh, right? Oh, huge, huge questions and red flags about what happens when you don't want some sex predator mm-hmm. who has a lifetime registration to then be able to change their name. And then how do they go under the radar? But the law they thought through that they are required to register with both their new name as well as their old name, and they have three to 10 days to do so. And so they have to continually renew that. But yes, it's definitely interesting. The idea being that those people wouldn't slip through the cracks and then no longer appear on a database, and then all of a sudden you aren't aware that your next-door neighbor has been convicted of a sex crime. Right, because if the person's registering as John Doe, Mm And then he changes his name to Jack Johnson. So does he keep registering as John Doe? And so, but then he lives this whole new life under his new name. Mm-hmm. Correct. And it's, you're right. I know you mentioned before, every, anyone who changes their name, they must go before a judge. And there's a lot of questions they ask under oath. You have to publish in the newspaper. You have to fill out these forms. The judge asks you, but I guess if you're going to go out and commit a crime, you have no problem lying to a judge to right. say you're going to do this for hiding yourself. But you still have to go before the judge, and the judge does have to decide whether or not to approve it. Right. I'd just be interested because we were talking about this off air, the idea being that certainly you know, you're, you feel for those victims of crimes who want to get away from their uh, earlier abusers. I'm sure there's plenty of examples of it. I don't know how many. You almost wonder, is this legislation, does it have blind spots that aren't intended for a relatively small part of the population that are that are getting the advantage of this? And I'm just thinking out loud. I'm not saying it's a reason not to do it or to do it. I imagine that's one of the questions that people raise. Oh, absolutely, because I don't think that they've kept statistics on how many individuals are convicted felon that have transitioned right. and become transgender or now are acknowledging that, what percentage of the felons are that, or how many convicted felons are actually the victims of domestic abuse. So say you were convicted of some form of murder, but you would claim self-defense because of domestic abuse, Mm -hmm. but unfortunately the jury or the judge did not agree with you. But still, you want to escape 
abuse from whomever, mm-hmm. right? I would imagine that's a smaller percentage of the population, but one never knows. And how do you prove that you truly were the victim of a domestic abuse or a difficult relationship in order to justify changing your name? Like what evidence is going to be needed? That is interesting. And this would all theoretically happen in this courtroom. Correct. And different judges hear different things. So not every judge will need the same amount of proof or evidence. Is it okay just to say, yes, I have been in this domestic violent abusive relationship in the past. And yes, I am a convicted felon. But now I need to change my name to hide my identity from my abuser. I'm moving to a different town. Is that enough? Do you actually have to show police reports that you've called the police? I mean, right. There's nothing. I, I guess I just take solace in knowing that it does go before a judge. And I always felt that way about the Safety Act, which I want to ask you a question about in a second, mm-hmm. knowing that still judges did have some discretion. We spent decades stripping judges of their ability to sentence certain ways mm-hmm. and to use discretion in certain ways. I think we've made a, a strong movement towards allowing judges to have more discretion in certain cases. I just appreciate that. There's going to be some on their face that it's like, no, you don't get to change your name. Here's what you did. And at least there's a human being that has this. It's not just some bureaucratic red pen gets signed and your name is changed. Right. A- an officer of the law has to look at you and say, yes, you can. Right. Absolutely. So it is going to be some judge. Yeah. Right? I mean, that makes a difference. Okay. I did want to ask you about the Safety Act before you go. We're just waiting, right? This right. is a part of limbo. Right. It's supposed to be up sometime in March for arguments and briefs to be written so then we don't know that's the expedited system for it to be in march but we then don't know how long it'll take for them to rule on it do we have any tea leaves reading how this court is going to rule it's a real interesting case it is a very very interesting case and it's new there isn't really other laws out there that similarly challenge there's a completely new makeup of the court i mean just so many different things and different factors and the judges aren't necessarily ruling on what they believe to be good policy They're ruling on the constitutionality of the question because there is some lines in the Illinois Constitution about bail. So then it and and that's really where the objection came through Kankakee, if I'm remembering my counties correctly, Mm -hmm. was that, look, say what you will about the the bill pro and con. The Illinois Constitution mentions bail in it and the Illinois Constitution can only be changed by the voters. And we just went through this. So that even if you love the Safety Act and you're all about criminal justice reform, is this the was this the proper way to have done it through the legislature? So you could have the most liberal court, quote unquote, still rule against you just because of the process, right? Right, exactly. So that's what people are hoping that it's just decided on that and not each justice's personal beliefs. All right. Which I guess it should be done that way. Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Audrey Anderson, a bunch of fascinating stuff here. 630-877-5800 is the number. 630-877-5800. AndersonAA.com. Who should be calling you? Anyone that thinks they or their child has a criminal investigation, please come knocking at the door. Say, no, I need time to think. I'll have my attorney call you later. Exactly. And have that number saved. And Audrey's like right at the top of the alphabet, too. So just, and so is Anderson. There yeah. you go. AA 630 Audrey, it's always good to see you. We'll do it again soon. Yes. Nice to see you, too. Thank you again. All right. We're going to take a break. We got news coming up from the Northwestern 